good day and welcome to Partaker's Podcasts. Reading from verse 13 of Acts chapter 15. After they were silent, James answered, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first visited the nations to take out of them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets. As it is written by the prophet Amos, After these things I will return. I will again build the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will again build its ruins. I will set it up that the rest of men may seek after the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, all his works are known to God from eternity. Therefore, my judgment is that we don't trouble those from among the Gentiles who turn to God, but that we write to them that they abstain from the pollution of idols, from sexual immorality, from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from generations of old, has in every city those who preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James speaking. James, the brother of Jesus and the writer of the epistle of James that we have in the New Testament. He was not an apostle. He delivered the coup de grace to the Judaistic argument with a direct appeal to the word of God, the Old Testament, the prophet Amos. He said that God had already spoken on the matter, and quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, James reminded them that the prophet had declared that David's fallen tent was to be restored, and that this would involve the ingathering of all the Gentiles who bear the Lord's name. This is fulfilled, James says, in all that Peter had described. The church of Jesus Christ was all along intended to encompass both Jew and non-Jewish Gentiles and one by one, without discrimination, they are brought to the same faith by the very same Lord. The gospel is for all nations. This, James showed, was the mind of God in Scripture. So firstly, let's look at deliverance proposed. The Lord's brother James then proposed the motion that was to become the findings of the Jerusalem Council. This consisted of two main parts. The first was the definitive doctrinal answer to the Judaizers, which stands for all time. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, in Acts chapter 15, verse 19. This verse is often passed over as a mere intro to the verses that follow, but it ought to be seen as standing on its own. It told the Judaizing party in the gentlest possible way. If they thought through all they had heard, that what they were asking for was not the Lord's will for the church, but was, indeed, even contrary to the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ and the wonderful doctrine of being put right with God by faith alone. If ever there was a soft answer that would turn away potential anger, this was it. We should not make it difficult is an example of affirming a basic doctrine in a very practical way. The doctrine had been clearly stated by the previous speakers. 
There was no need for a bare restatement. There was need, however, to persuade people of its practical significance. And at the same time, those whose views were being rejected needed to know that they were not being personally rejected, but that they were still warmly embraced within the fellowship of the Lord's people. Having received the considered judgment of the church, the whole church, they could be expected to receive it with due submission in the Lord. They were certainly not to be made to feel that they had been foolish or that they were no longer welcome. And this is surely a model for resolving doctrinal and practical controversy today. Too often church debates degenerate into fights and lead to unnecessary and ungodly division. The maintenance of truth never requires discourtesy or unpleasantness on the parts of its advocates, even if those who oppose it are strident and contentious. James deftly set the denial of any requirement of legal observances for salvation, the other side which was the affirmation of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, in terms of not putting difficulties, that is, unbiblical ones, in the way of Gentile converts being received into membership of the church. And then we have unity proposed. The second part is a practical four-point proposal. It was designed to foster unity in the church by asking Gentile Christians to take particular care to distance themselves from their former way of life. This was also no doubt designed to allay the fears of Jewish Christians whose sense of what constituted a God-honouring lifestyle was formed by the regulations of the law of Moses. They needed to know that Gentile Christians were not adrift from practical godliness as properly defined by God's word. James, therefore, addressed specific practical issues where the teaching of the scriptures, still confined to the Old Testament, challenged the accepted norms of Gentile behaviour and called for a conscientious application of biblical principles. And here are those four things. Firstly, leave alone. They should abstain from food polluted by idols. This had been offered, or food that had been offered at pagan temples as sacrifices to the, to the gods and the surplus sold in the market. The question here was not primarily one of diet, that is dealt with later in the third and fourth, but concerned association with the melee from which the food had come. Questions of conscience later arose in Corinth on this very point. They were addressed by Paul, who made it clear that while there was no essential problem with eating this meat, there ought to be sensitivity to the tender consciences of those who, having come out of paganism, regarded consuming it as a sinful complicity with paganism. Secondly, they should abstain from sexual immorality. The Gentile world, like that of television, movies and sitcoms today, treated promiscuous sexual relations, particularly in the Greek world, as acceptable and a part of normal behaviour. This was sin then, and it remains sin to this day. Third, they shouldn't eat of the meat of strangled animals. 
This is a reference to meat from which the blood had not been completely strained, according to Levitical law. And lastly, they should eat no blood. And this was the basis for the preceding point. Blood was symbolic of life and was to be reserved for sacrifice to the Lord, thus underscoring his role as the giver of life. None of these, as John Owen points out, was a new imposition on the practice of the churches. All were clearly taught in Scripture, even if all but the second were elements of old covenant piety that would eventually pass away when the full revelation of the New Testament was completed. The purpose of reiterating them here was to encourage a discerning sensitivity to practical godliness in a Gentile socio-cultural melee and a Jewish-Christian ecclesiastical context or church context. Gentiles were to examine themselves critically, to examine their old habits and give no cause to anyone to accuse them of their old sins. They were also encouraged to be graciously accommodating to Jewish dietary sensitivities. And for their part, Jewish believers needed to understand that Gentiles were not to be required to observe the Mosaic ceremonial law now that the Messiah had come and published the gospel of sovereign grace in all its fullness. The decision was made to adopt James's proposal and send a letter with a deputation to all the churches in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. This conveyed the verdict of the council. Today it still vibrates with lively applicability. Then there's grace alone. The men who insisted on circumcision and the law were declared to be without the church's authorization for their disturbing teaching. This almost unobtrusive dismissal underscores the solidity with which the church knew its doctrine. From the beginning, the apostles clearly taught that salvation was by the free and sovereign grace of God, through faith in Christ alone, and not through man's best efforts to keep the law and impress God with self-generated good works. Jerusalem held that line and closed the door to works righteousness. Good works have a vital place in the Christian life, to be sure. They are, however, not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation, prepared by God in advance for us to do. And then there's the Spirit alone. They emphasize that the decision seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the Church. Here is the purpose and the role of the Church in the guidance and discipline of God's people. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth, all decisions in all churches, as well as the individual Christian's life, ought to fulfill this condition. Not only does it tell us what God does with his church, but it defines the goal and prayer of the church. If what we do only seems good to us, without the evident leading of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then we are simply not doing the Lord's work. And then standing alone, the council's four requirements, one permanent, sexual immorality, the other is transitional and temporary, 
highlight the necessity and the blessing of the separated life for Christians. You will do well to avoid these things. Acts 15 verse 29 Christians must bear a decisive testimony to the society in which they are located. A testimony which shows the righteousness of God before the world. The result in the mission, churches were encouraged and continued blessing through the ministry of Judas, Silas, Paul and Barnabas. The burden of Judaistic legalism was lifted. The gospel of Jesus Christ was lifted up before the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit continued to accompany the preaching of the word with power, so that more and more people were being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's it for today. Come back every day to www.partakers.co.uk where there is something uploaded to help you as a Christian disciple in the 21st century. Our books are also available on www.pulptheology.com which will take you through to our Amazon page. See you later.